Amen. You can be seated. If you are aged three through ten, you are released to your classrooms. And Miss Lindsay and Ms. Pastor Carrie will be taking threes and fours. And the five through tens, you guys know the routine. Line up outside the door. And for those of us who are staying here and gathered worship, glad that you're here with us. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. 20. My name is Josh and I serve as one of the pastors of the church and our church uh, for the last three weeks and now entering into our fourth is walking through a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so we're excited about what God said to those Israelites so many thousands of years ago and what he has to say for us. And today we're on the third commandment. And so I want to read for us, I want to get us right there in Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Exodus 20, 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me read verse 7 again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Can we pray together? I can think of five reasons why we get distracted right now. Noises, things, thoughts, problems, stresses, anxiety. But God, I beg you for a singular focus this morning. Give us the grace of attention. We need you. And the word that you have for our church this morning is uh, big. It's overwhelming. And if you don't do the work We labor in vain. We gather in vain. So Lord, I pray for sight of Christ. I pray that you would help us 
see you. God, give us the ability to see you on your throne right now, high and exalted. And that there are spirits, there are angels, there are thousands, there's a throng of worship around your throne. And as they dare to look upon you, it is one response, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the very train of his robe is filling the temple. God, the only thing that we can handle of your presence is the bottom of your coat. Give us that sort of sight right now, please, God. Please move in this building. Please move in these hearts. If you don't go before us, if you're not up underneath us, if you're not going right through us, this will will be miserable. So please be so gracious to meet us here now. Please be, would you, would you express your, your, your covenant love by being near to us right now? Fall afresh on us. And I pray for clarity. I pray for understanding. I pray for the God-wrought repentance that your word demands. And I stand before you as a man who has disobeyed this command. It's yours. I give it to you. It's yours. In Jesus' name, amen. third commandment is a warning. Do not rob God of his name. To take the Lord's name is theft. And the reputation of the Lord and his name is the greatest concern for the Christian. What my life and my words communicate to the world about who God is, is something that I'm commanded to take seriously. Something we're all commanded to take seriously. And I have had to ask God for forgiveness because there are times when I speak of his name so inappropriately 
I speak of his name without value and meaning because, see, Christians, we don't have permission to speak God's name the way we want to speak it. And we see why in Exodus 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the foundation upon which the third commandment stands is God's relentless possession of his people. He owns us. He owns me. He owns you. If we have any hope to understand this third word, it will have to start with believing Paul when he said that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or in this case, glorify God in your speech. My life, my decisions, my relationships, my money, my spending, my job, my reputation, my hobbies, my leisure, my thoughts, my body, my house, my joy, my grief, my holiness, my words, my everything is his. None of it belongs to me. If you are here Your call in this life is a sweeping and joyful resignation to God the King. This life begins, it finds worth, and it ends with knowing that God can and will do what he wants with me, what he wants with us. This is what it means to call God the Lord. This is what it means for him to have all of me. See, that is the demand of the Ten Commandments. All of you, every fiber, every inch of you. That is the demand of the law. The law says be utterly consumed by, with, and for God. But the problem with that is that while the law reveals this demand to be consumed by God, it lacks power to get me there. It requires obedience, but it lacks the ability. The law left to itself is a miserable thing because it is a soul-crushing reminder that we can't do it. You see, the greatest problem that we face is us. Think about this for a second. When you create something, you own it, right? Those of you who like to work with your hands. You build a table, you own that table. It's yours. Well, in the same way, we belong to God then. He created us. Therefore, he owns us. But the story of humanity is that we have rejected God's ownership. And instead, we chase after our own ownership. We chase after self-rule. We we chase after autonomy. We are all found saying, I am my own God. This was the first mistake that was ever made by humans, and it's the root of every sin since. God created us in his image to rule with him, to be ruled by him in love and in justice and freedom and in joy, but we rejected that. And we became jealous for our own rights, our own autonomy, and our own power. And that decision, that 
irresistible, can't-be-stopped problem that we have does not go unseen. God never lets sin go unpunished. This this is a God who is an all-consuming fire. A quote we find in the New Testament. And he condemns those who refuse him. And the price of our rebellion against God is death. It's death of the body, but it's death of the soul. Every human has this major crisis that we have sins that need forgiveness. But it doesn't stop there. It goes further than that. Not only do I need my sins to be forgiven, I also need my heart to be remade, to be refashioned, to put a new one in there. It's not just that I'm a rebel and I made mistakes. It's that I'm a rebel yoked to the power of sin. I'm sin's slave. This is why Martin Luther said it's the best I can find. He says the law is a hammer. The law is like a hammer. Because it it shows you your sin, it lays you low in your sin, and you don't have any hope to fix it. Hear me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, oh, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises you forgiveness from your rebellion. Yes, 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 we need to be justified. We need to be acquitted in the courtroom of God. But it also promises you new life. This is what Jesus has done for you. You see, God has sent his son into the world, Jesus, to be in our world, to be like us yet without sin. He is not a slave to sin. God, the very God of very God, became a man and he lived the obedient life that you haven't lived. He obeyed God's will in a way that I can't. Jesus is perfect. He's perfect. He is the only man that as the hammer of the law falls, he grabs it and he casts it aside. Who is like Jesus Christ? Jesus is is the law in person. He is the word of God made flesh. But if he came and he stopped with his perfect life, we're damned to hell. Still. So the, the good news of Jesus Christ doesn't stop with him living a perfect life, does it? There's even better news in store for those of us. Jesus didn't come to the earth only to obey his father's law. He came to die for me because I didn't obey God's law. The greatest exchange that this world will ever know is the one that's made at the cross. When God's very son says, give me your rebellion and I'll give you my righteousness. Give me your rags and I'll give you my riches. Give me your dead deeds and guess what? I'll give you a new nature. That is is the best thing you can know and hear and believe. Jesus died your death for you. Jesus rose your life for you. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, the most spectacular thing we can know is that we can become one with Christ. We can walk in the life that he walks in. We can walk in the power that he walks in. So the promise of the gospel is God will forgive you of your sins, yes, and he'll make you hate them. New life in Christ has no tolerance for sin. Everything changes now. I was thinking about it this this morning. You know, 
Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean heart, a clean heart, uh, pure, pure, am I getting this backwards? Clean hands, a pure heart, one who does not swear falsely. He's talking about that, that whole exchange. That's the only person who can get up to the law or get up to see God. There's God on this mountain and he's up there. He says, come to me, but I'm chained to my sin. I can't, I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I do swear deceitfully. And then he breaks the chains they're gone, and now through Christ, through Christ alone, I can walk up the mountain and be with God? Why are we settling for frivolities of the world when that is available? See, everything changes when you believe in Christ. What you crave changes. Whereas obedience used to be drudgery, now it's joy. Whereas you used to demand control of your life, now you willingly yield. Jesus says something very much like the law, by the way, in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know what that word means? Sayonara to my former ways. I cannot, you can't follow me person, you can't follow me woman, you can't follow me man unless you say goodbye on a ship that's never coming back to your former life. That is the demand that he makes. That's the condition that he has. But guess what? Because he died, your death, and because he rose up again from the grave, it's possible to follow it. It's possible to renounce all that you have and become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christ has provided the power for what he demands. Praise God. You want to talk about a full gospel? Incredible news. We get to say goodbye. We get to forsake our former ways, and we have a new nature and a new power. So when the Lord tells Moses to his face, or Peter tells the churches in Asia Minor, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, it no longer serves as our condemnation. It serves as our delight. For the Christian. The law isn't some stone tablet that chains us to sin. Now the law is written on our hearts. Praise God for the spirit that indwells us. It is a part of who we are. Christians have been supernaturally enabled to be passionate about God and his holiness. Now the very thing that God demands is available to us in Christ. So time out. Is that you? Is that you here? If you're here today and this doesn't describe you, what are you going to do? God demands your heart and your eternity hangs in the balance. Will you embrace his open invitation? Will you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of your heart? If you will turn from sin and yield your life to Christ, you can have all of him. And if God is cutting open your heart, squeezing it, ripping it, good. Praise God for that. And we want you to respond. It's not going to be a hand raise. It's not going to be a walk down this aisle. It's going to be a conversation over there at the end of the service. Please do not leave here without making things right with the Lord. And all of this this relationship between the law and the gospel and the power that we have in Christ, it gets us back to the third commandment. For those who don't have Christ, this commandment is miserably impossible. And for those with Christ, it's a matter of joyful obedience. 
when God is the very center of your life, his name takes precedence in your life. Look again at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There are two themes here, God's name and our speech. How we speak, use, think, sing, pray, God's name matters greatly. But why? Let's think about it. Why is this commandment three? Why is it such a big deal, God? Why is your name such a big deal? Well, you've experienced it, whether or not we even have thought about this before. In ancient cultures, modern cultures, and really any culture, a name is more than just a title. It's more than a designation. It's an essence. It is the verbal symbol for a person. It represents the person. And in that sense, that your name is the person. I am Josh. That's an identity statement. That's an essence statement. I'm identified by my name. My name is me in that sense. God's name is Yahweh. I am that I am. The existing one. The pre-existing one. God's name is who he is. To speak the name of God is to draw out everything that makes him God. Therefore, his name requires reverence, it requires awe, it requires caution, it requires adoration. The very end of God's instructions to the people of Israel, he says this in Deuteronomy 28. Be careful to do all the works of this law written in this book so that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh, your God. Do we have that sort of approach with God's name? Do we have a fear of the Lord? Do we have a fear of the Lord in this church? Now, I know what many would say is that, wait, 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 that's, that's not healthy. That's unhealthy. Doesn't John say, perfect love cast out fear? Well, that's the wrong verse for this. And that's the wrong conclusion I'm not talking about a fear that keeps you out of God's presence. I'm, I'm talking about a fear that draws you into his presence. While we have an incredibly open access to the throne of God, what we need to realize is that when we walk in, do you know what happens? When you walk into the presence of God where the name of God is on display, do you know what happens for the Christian? Simultaneous joy and trembling. The name of the Lord ought to put joy in our hearts and our faces on the floor. I'm praying that we are a people who not only worship our Lord as the friend of Abraham, but also as the fear of Isaac. The names of God reveal our relationship to him. How are we speaking to him? How are we speaking about him? Is his name and glory our greatest passion and concern? That is the question that the third commandment asks. Meanwhile, we have our work cut out for us. While this command speaks to the holiness of God's name, it also speaks to the problem called the human tongue. James 3 tells us that the tongue is dangerous, that it's a restless evil, 
full of deadly poison. He even says no human can tame the tongue. God knows that. God is aware of that. God knows how unruly the human tongue is. And therefore, and even still, God is unwilling to possess a people who belittle his name by how they speak and live. So he, he, for, he forbids vain speech. You see that? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, what does that mean? It means to be vain is to be empty, to be worthless, to be for no good purpose. To take something in vain is to empty it of its meaning, to reduce it to nothing. Another word we see right alongside vanity is profanity. To profane God's name. This is a, a Latin word. It's, a, it's a, a group, it's a combination of two words. It means outside the temple. Pro, outsider before, fanus, temple. To profane God's name is to speak as if what you are saying is outside of God's temple, his presence. Profanity, the true definition of profanity, is to speak as if God can't hear you. Think about that for a second. How often are we speaking with one another as if God isn't there? Profanity is not just some four-letter word. It's talking as if God can't hear you or doesn't care. And that makes us ask this question. Does my speech demonstrate my constant awareness and reverence for the presence of God? I can't possibly answer that question. Does my speech demonstrate my constant awareness and reverence for the presence of God? Profanity. Vain use of God's name is not only possible. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And, I wanna, and I'm just going to go through two categories. Two categories here. The first category is vanity of speech, as you might expect. Vanity of speech, otherwise known as carelessness. So vanity of speech, carelessness. And this carelessness can happen in two main ways. You see this in your notes as well. First is when we use his name lightly or falsely. When we use God's name lightly or falsely. And this is where, when you look at the narrow context of this command, you'll find that it cautions us against invoking or calling upon, strongholding, laying hold of God's name in a reckless or selfish way. Well, this is being used all the time in the, in the Hebrew culture. When you promise something by the name of Yahweh, you are saying, I guarantee that my promise is true. And if not, may Yahweh punish me or kill me. That's what that means. This is an oath that takes hold of God's name to legitimize the validity of your promise. It is a doubling down on the veracity of your statement based on the fact that you know God is listening and he's going to serve justice if you're lying. Now, as an aside, really quick, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
when done reverently, this can be useful. In fact, if you think about it, our entire justice system is built on the third commandment, taking oaths to this day. Isn't that fascinating in a godless country that we, <laughs> we swear to God under oath in court? But what God says in places like Leviticus 19, Numbers chapter 30, Deuteronomy 23, and others, is that if you're using God's name recklessly or falsely as you take an oath, God will hold you guilty. That's what it says here in this verse, verse 7. God will hold you guilty because, one, you're lying and you're attaching his name to your lie. Two, you're using his name to get a result that you want. God passionately despises his name being attached to evil. So when you break an oath, you just called God a liar. That's what the Old Testament says. God passionately despises his name being attached to evil or being manipulated for someone else's personal gain. God is saying, don't use my name on your mouth for your own personal advantage. He won't have it. In fact, some of the most sobering stories of the Bible come when God's name is profaned or blasphemed or taken in vain. A paralyzing example that just stopped me was Leviticus 24. You can read that one, 11 through 16. It's unbelievable. Well, right alongside this is the flippant use of God's name, like the name God or Jesus Christ. This is what we all kind of know about the third commandment. This is what the third commandment is famous for, right? When someone says, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, or other ones that are even worse. Let's be honest, though, about this. It's crept back in. It's crept back in. To say, oh my God, has come back. All too often, Christians are using God's name flippantly. Perhaps it was an annoyance. Perhaps it, was, it came alongside a roll of the eyes. Perhaps it was even an injury or some crazy story or even something as simple as a funny joke. But then the name of the living God gets thrown around so casually in that conversation. Let's make it plain. The name at which every knee should bow and every tongue should confess should not be the same name you use when your toddler wakes you up at 3 a.m. again and again, and again. Find another word to vent with. The name by which men are saved should not be what flies out of our mouths when we're complaining about a coworker or we're in a fight with a spouse. And to those of us in our 20s and 30s, especially, I'll, I'll, I'll fly the millennial card too. We have to pay attention. Because if there is one clear, almost evidence track that we can say is our parents didn't do this as much as we are. Our culture is taking the Lord's name in this way, very commonly. Be salt and light. Be salt and light with language. Let's cut this out. Okay, a second way that we can have vanity of speech is when we speak his word lightly or falsely. When we speak God's word lightly or falsely. When we take God's word and we make it say something that it was not intended to say, or when we take God's word and we make light of it, 
We even, some people can even joke about the word. We profane God's name. And this can happen in all sorts of forms. And the best list I've ever seen of someone extensively listed out is a Puritan, Thomas Watson. He lists like all sorts of ways. It's incredible. His book on the Ten Commandments is, is stellar. Um, but for example, when, are we, when we use the Bible of all things to justify our sin to others or to ourselves, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. So when a workaholic uses the Bible to excuse his idolatry, or when someone uses the Bible to excuse his laziness, or when a father uses the Bible to justify cruelty, or when a theologian uses the Bible to fuel his pride, all of that and whatever else you can imagine is taking God's name in vain. Our knowledge of the word is not licensed for sin. We must be careful to apply the scriptures to kill sin, not condone it. So if we're making theological arguments and building our little towers for ourselves to our sin, shame on us. Let's not use the word to justify our sin. Let's kill it. Remember who we are in Christ. The chains are gone. Don't use something that he spoke. No. Another example here would include false teaching. False teaching is taking the Lord's name in vain. We abuse God's name when we ascribe a doctrine or a command to God that is not true. We see this with the false prophets of the Old Testament. We see it with the false teachers of the New. Examples like Deuteronomy 13, Jeremiah 7, 2 Timothy 2 and 3. God hates false doctrine. Why? Because it attaches that which is not true to his flawless name. So when a prosperity preacher uses the name of God and the gospel of Christ to make health and wealth promises that they can't keep, that's the Lord's name in vain. When a pluralistic preacher says that Jesus is not God or Jesus isn't the only way or he's not the only son of God, they're smearing the name of Jesus Christ. Theology matters because God's name is attached to our theology. So when you get into the word, Fight for the reputation and the sanctity of God's name when you gather in that time. I was talking with a friend here just, just a couple weeks ago. And we noticed that when Paul addresses new or weaker believers, there's a ton of patience. There's a ton of encouragement. He's like a, an older brother, like a, like a father to those new or weaker believers. But when Paul is addressing false teachers, he's ruthless like a warrior. And we have to have that same tension. We have that same call is the reputation of our Lord our greatest concern. Okay, so it's not only vanity of speech. Let me add on to this one briefly. It's also a vanity of life. Vanity of life. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. When we say something out of our mouths, but we live in another way. We are profaning the name of God. I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50, 5 zero, and go to verse 14. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. 
and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or look at this third commandment language, or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like you, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. May it mark this then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Can you imagine putting that to music? <laughs> That's what these are. They're, it's music. That's a song. Brothers and sisters, what does Psalm chapter 50 say? To have a life of sin, but a mouth of praise is a detestable thing in the eyes of God. To have a life of sin but a mouth of praise is a detestable thing in the eyes of God. When, I glori- when my lips glorify God, but my life gratifies the flesh, I am emptying God of his name. Is this not the charge that Jesus brings against the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, God is not going to allow this. To sing, God, you are all that I need, but then to kneel before an idol is hypocrisy. To say, God, I surrender to you while I try to anxiously control every single detail of my life that is breaking this command. To say that God is sovereign, but then to complain about his provisions in this life, that is to take his name in vain. To say, God, you are all that I want. You're all that I could, you're only only one I want to be with. And then yet we spend endless hours on social media rather than finding his beautiful face. That makes me a liar. Brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, what does my life say about God? God calls and empowers his, his people to a tight symmetry in worship and in way, in lip and in life. We have to fight for that symmetry. So, let's ask, what comes out of my mouth that doesn't truly reflect the state of my heart? What comes out of my mouth that doesn't truly reflect the state of my heart? What am I faking? Because Psalm 50 is super clear. There was a faker there was a fraud in Psalm 50. You know what God basically is saying to him? You don't think I see you? Do you think I'm okay with your life? Your lifestyle? You see, God didn't create us. He didn't send his son to us. He didn't purchase us with his own blood so that our lives would be a stench to him. He saved us to make us holy in life and in speech. Because here's the promise. Here's the promise of the gospel. If you are his, he will will align your heart and your mouth. He will do it. Praise God. He will sanctify his people. He who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But he'll do it by fire. 
But if we are those who treasure God in our hearts, if he is the very prize of our lives, then sanctification will be a painful bliss. It will be a soul-wrenching wonder. So what is our response? And I am specifically thinking of Christians as I say this. What is our response? If these are the several ways to take his name in vain, what is the opposite obedience that we are empowered to live? Well, the answer is found in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. To be hallowed is the opposite of being common. The name of the Lord isn't like the rest of the words that we use. It's not even like the rest of the names that we know. It is unique. It is set apart. It is holy. And may the name of our God be hallowed amongst this church. In our minds, in our hearts, in our speech. There are two ways that I'm thinking of. There's many more. There's two ways to do this. One way is to be filled up with God and his word. To be filled up with God and his word. If vanity means to empty well then let's do the opposite let's fill one of the best ways to prevent empty God talk is to be filled up with the greatness of God the one who knows God in the word is less likely to profane his name there is a relationship between knowledge and obedience of the word and holiness of speech when the word actually is penetrating your heart it will sanctify your tongue so be filled up with God and his word and secondly, we must have integrity. Have integrity with every word. Those that fear the Lord walk in truth. We walk in honesty. This is what Jesus himself is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five thirty four. Jesus says, I say to you, do not even take an oath, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Let what you say be, simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is describing the Christian tongue. Jesus doesn't want a spoken promise of integrity. He wants a life of integrity. So that when you say it, you'll do it. Sat with my DNA group this morning and had to and I realized I needed to confess to my wife, and I did confess to her. How many times have I said, I'll be home at su such a time, and then I'm not there? I'm not there. If there's an exception to the rule, if something comes up, yes, fine, grace, grace. But when you say you're going to be home, brothers, get there. And wind down whatever time you have to get backwards, and wind down to make sure that you can make that transition so that 5 o'clock, you're there. Because you made a promise. Integrity of speech in every aspect of your life. Brothers, let's lead in this way. Let's lead by what we say to our wives. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll get to it. Come on. Jesus says your life should be so predictable that every time you say it, you do it. Let's not be men of broken promises. Even small ones. Even small ones. people of God do what they say they will do. The people of Christ will be like their master, faithful to their word. 
And so as we look at the third commandment, I realize that I have tossed up a softball and smacked you in the face with it. I understand. I understand. But hear the main idea again and again and again, and I will let the Lord do work on your heart. Do not rob God of his name by how you speak or by how you live. Do not rob God of his name. Instead, regard it. Relish it. Love it. Chase after it. This is our call. It's our privilege. And it's, and, and don't forget what I started. It's possible. It's possible to regard the name of the Lord for Christians. By the power of the Spirit alone, we can walk in obedience. Let's pray. God, may Redeemer 38 be a church that cares about the reputation of God. Yes, in the world, but even more amongst us. Inside these walls, may the reputation of the Lord be our pursuit. God, may we be a people who chase after the sanctity of your name by the way that we live, by the way that we speak. Oh God, make us reverent people and make us people of integrity. So that the way that we live and the way that we speak might glorify the name of God. God, we need help. There's, there's two things we can do wrong here. We can, we can turn toward legalism and assume that our obedience to this command justifies us. That will never be. It's only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that we are justified by faith. And the other temptation is lawlessness. To be people who, who say they've been sanctified but live evil lives. To not care, not care about what you care about. To lose sight of how the gospel has written the law of God on our hearts. Prevent us from both of those, Father. And help us walk this straight and narrow path called being saved by grace and being taken and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Help us, help us walk that narrow path. Help us fight that fight. If you are not up underneath us as we long to obey you, we will miserably fail and we will malign your name. So help us, Lord. We cry out to you as your slaves, yes, but as your kids as your children who are asking their father for a good gift, would you give us the good gift of reverence toward you, the good gift of integrity in our life? And through it all, may, may Jesus Christ be glorified. In Christ's name.
Amen.